0: I encourage you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Booker T. Washington was born into slavery in Richmond, Virginia, in 1856. In his autobiography, Up from Slavery, Washington recounts his liberation from slavery and also his extraordinary life as a free man. He did not title the book Liberated from slavery Washington does recount his memories of being set free as a slave and he rejoices in this crucial turning point in our nation's history but Washington recognized that the abolition of slavery was no gift in and of itself he realized that freedom from the chains of slavery was a call to rise up out of the pit of servitude and to live as a free man who willingly served others and actively contributed to the good of society. And by sheer determination and persistent effort, Washington overcame seemingly insurmountable odds to gain a formal education. He then dedicated his life to help former slaves and their children to learn to think, and to function as free men and women who contributed positively to their communities. Washington understood, like few others in his day, that liberated slaves had to develop a whole new way of looking at life if they were ever to prosper in their freedom, as he in fact did. Now the analogy certainly breaks down, but born-again members of the body of Christ are in one sense ex-slaves we have been liberated from the penalty and the bondage of sin. We were born into that condition. Sold into the slavery of sin. As Christ comes to provide salvation for us, we are not only saved from something, the penalty of sin, we are saved to something. Saved to live in a radically different way from the world out of which we were rescued. Now that we've been transformed into a new spiritual realm, it's our high calling to learn to think and to act as people who have been liberated by Christ to live holy lives. That is our calling. That is to be our orientation. If you've been genuinely born again, you have a new identity. You were a slave of sin mired in that pit of depravity. But now you are a member of the new humanity. Now you have tied into a new narrative that radically changes your identity. We noted last week, we looked at that passage in Ephesians 4, and I want to remind us of it here today at verse 17, how we have been delivered from from one realm to another. We've been rescued out of one realm. We've been placed into another as we walk with Christ. Ephesians 4 and verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity but that is not the way you learn Christ. That's not who you are now in Him. Assuming that you've heard about Him, you've heard the Gospel, assuming that you were taught in Him, you've been discipled to understand His ways as the truth is in Jesus, if you've come to know that, then you know that we have put off the old self which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is our identity. This is our calling. This is what Christ has done. But what does that look like in more practical terms? What does that life look like? As we build off the message of Ephesians last week, that we've been delivered from one realm to another, that Christ has rescued us out of the darkness of sin in this world, I'd like us to turn to Romans chapter 12, where we find two specific responses that will characterize those who are rightly pursuing their new identity in Christ. One of the dangers of Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 is that we're very familiar with the wording, but I'd like us to soak in that wording and to see the connections as we work through these two verses and look at the characteristics, these two characteristics in verses 1 and 2, of those who rightly pursue their new identity in Christ. So I understand I've been delivered from the realm of the world, but now what does that look like? What are the practical implications? What will characterize my life as I pursue that new identity. The first characteristic is a life devoted to the service of God. The word service or worship, it can be translated either way, but a life devoted to the service of God. That will characterize those who have been delivered from this darkness. We note in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So it is in view of, it is because of what God has done for us in Christ, that this responsibility is now placed upon us. As the book of Romans develops to this point, we realize that we were once enemies of God. His holy anger raged against our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. Chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 5, and verse 8. But in His abundant mercies, God saved us, not on the merits of our righteousness, but as a gift of His grace. He reaches to people in sin, and He pours out His mercies upon them, giving them salvation. And so it is on the merits of Christ's sacrifice that God's gift of mercy is extended to us. Our only hope as sinners rests upon Jesus dying in our place and satisfying God's judgment against our sin. That judgment falling on Jesus who then rose in conquest over death. It is this mercy to us that is the ground for this call, this mercy toward us is all-encompassing, and so our response should be life-dominating. I appeal to you by the mercies of God in light of those mercies to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. Present. Terminology is borrowed from the Mosaic Law. It was a technical term used to describe the dedication of an animal for sacrifice for slaughter on the altar. That animal was presented at the altar. You didn't take it back, and it didn't come back. It was given in death. It was turned over and devoted wholly to God. We do not devote ourselves to God in order to earn salvation. But it is in light of the mercies of God, in light of what He has done in Christ, that we respond to this unmerited gift of mercy, devoting our bodies as a living sacrifice. So in contrast to the animals, the sacrificial animals that died under the Old Covenant sacrificial system, we are a living sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled and ended the sacrificial system. He died as the ultimate Lamb of God on the cross it's in response to this death that we are to live a life now of devotion to Him. We're to give our bodies to Him. Is that bodies in distinction from the Spirit? We are devote our bodies to the Lord and whatever's in our heart, we just that's our own thing to do it with what we want. Oh, clearly not. Bodies here is, is a word that's intending to draw the idea of our entire being. Our everything is to be devoted over to God. So let me ask you this question. Did Jesus die in your place to bear the punishment of your sin? And have you received that gift of His mercy and grace? As you discern your own heart, what do you say to this question? If He has died in your place, if He has borne the penalty of your sin, He has given His body to be crucified for you. There's only one honorable response, and that is to live in utter devotion in every aspect of our lives. There's no other answer. One commentator says, Christian worship does not consist of what is practiced at sacred sites, at sacred times, and with sacred acts. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with those things, But true Christian worship is submitting body and spirit unreservedly to God in all things at all times. He died for us that we might live for Him. So my sacrifice of praise to God is bound up in what I look at with my eyes what I listen to with my ears, what I do with my hands, where I go with my feet. My body belongs to Christ. I give it to Him unreservedly. I live for Him who died for me. Because of His mercies, I give myself to Him. And there's two characteristics, sub-characteristics in a sense here, of that life. We've noticed there in verse 1, it's marked by holiness and a life that it's acceptable to God. A holy life. That's a life marked by moral distinctiveness. Again, the question we must ask, does my life just look like everybody around me? Does it look like my unbelieving neighbors and friends and schoolmates and workmates and the people that surround me? Does it look just like that? Holiness leads us to moral distinctiveness. A holy life is marked by distinctive righteousness. People should be able to look at our life and say there's something different there. There's a godliness of life there. There's a pursuit of righteousness. There's a focus on God. It's a holy life this person lives. A life secondly acceptable to God. A life orientation that is ever considering this question, what is it that pleases the Lord? I ask that question. I breathe that question. What is it that pleases the Lord? I may not always know but I live every day of my life focused on the goal of thinking and doing what pleases God. Such an orientation, says Paul, is your spiritual worship. This phrase is difficult to translate, and that's why the translations take it differently. Many bringing in the idea of some reasonableness of some sort. But the idea of the Word is that submitting my life to God in absolute devotion is the only rational, spiritually sensitive response that is fitting in light of what God has done for me in Christ. There really is no other answer. Made in the image of God, saved by Jesus from hell, our high calling is to devote our entire being to His service, to His worship. So, a life devoted to the service of God. I have this orientation. I realize that this is the call upon my life. I realize I've been liberated for this. To live in service and devotion to the Lord. Now our translation does not bring out a connector here with verse 2. The simple word and could be used here at the start of the verse. Sometimes it's translated... No translation, I don't think always translates it, but it's a connecting point. And it may indicate then that verse 2 is describing how, more specifically, we do verse 1. How do I live a life devoted to the service of God? Here's how it happens, though, or here's how we are to pursue that. I'll take it here just as a second point, a characteristic. A life devoted to the service of God. Secondly, a mind transformed by the will of God. A mind transformed by the will of God. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Negatively, do not be conformed to this world. That is, we must not let the spirit of the age squeeze us into its mold. We must not let the godless philosophies and the immoral behaviors of this world fashion our way of life and our system of beliefs. We've been delivered from the old order. We've been formed through salvation as a new humanity in Christ. We've been liberated from this world. And God calls us not to conform to the God-rejecting world around as Galatians 1.4 puts it, Jesus gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The only sane thing then for us to do is to resist the world's allure and to refuse to be shaped by its demands. The fact that we are transformed onto a new storyline, into a new realm, does not mean that the old realm has lost its influence upon us. In fact, there is a strong pull of influence and conformity that's there. The pull of the world is strong and we must be careful not to be drawn in by it. So don't conform to this world, to its pattern of thinking, to its behavior, to its orientation away from God. Don't conform to that, but positively be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You'll notice here, it doesn't say transform yourself. The passive tense points to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. This transformation is something in which we, however, participate. Namely, by the renewal of our minds. God will transform us. The Spirit of God will transform our minds as we give ourselves to their renewal. Through spiritual rebirth, God is progressively transforming our way of thinking our way of perceiving the world. We learn and embrace the truth of God, rejecting the lies of this world. We learn to center our affections on God and not on self. That's a radically different way of thinking. We learn to take every thought into the captivity of Christ, to obey Him in all that we think and do. To be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Our mind is the faculty by which we discern the truth and make decisions. Your will is the inclination to do and to believe what your mind perceives to be the best thing. If Jonathan Edwards is right on that, it's not like the will is some sort of separate entity out there. Our minds direct our will. We choose what our mind discerns to be the best course of action and what will bring the greatest satisfaction as our minds are renewed to think God's thoughts after Him and to prioritize what He desires, to love what we should love as we should love it, we will make decisions on the basis of a renewed mind that please the Lord. Notice how that's described here. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing, that by testing you may learn to discern what is the will of God, And his will is good and acceptable and perfect. I think that's how we should take it. By testing, you may discern. That's actually one Greek word to prove by testing, to examine so as to discover, to sift through facts so as to discern the truth. Does that mark your life? You think that way. Sifting through ideas, sifting through facts, seeking to discern the truth as we live out our lives to please the Lord. So I ask, what does God think? What does God value? What pleases the Lord? What is the spiritually mature thing to do? What is the spiritually mature thing to believe in this situation? Now there's a way of thinking about worldliness that is as wrong as it is common. Some Christians seem to think that there are worldly ideas and behaviors, and there's a box over here, And we put certain things in that box. Then over here's another box where there's godly ideas and behaviors and some things go into that box. And it's very easily discerned that it's one or the other. It's perfectly obvious what fits into one and what fits into the other. Just ask them. They know. They've got it all figured out. Is that what verse 2 is teaching us? Would you come to that conclusion out of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 naturally? This verse indicates the process is not nearly that simplistic. In view here is an ongoing, lifelong process of growing in our ability to discern God's will. It says here, be transformed. Does that happen in one afternoon? Does that happen because you go to some seminar and somebody sets you all straight on what's worldly and what's not? Be transformed. A present imperative speaking of an ongoing process of transformation. It's a process carried forward by active renewal of our minds, which is no overnight affair. To discern what pleases the Lord involves a lifelong process of learning what God has revealed in His Word and learning to think like Jesus would think, and learning to keep in step with the Spirit of God. Think of it in terms of how we learn to drive. We don't take this wannabe driver and throw them behind the wheel and just let them go to their driving test, do we? It'd be frightening if we did. There's some of you that look excited about the prospect. It's not going to happen. When a person learns to drive, they, they might their first experience might be on the lap of a parent just holding the wheel. But then we kind of work our way up from there. The first thing is to sort of drive in an empty parking lot. And then when a permit is gained through another series of events, and we, give, we, we try to find a street where there's no cars... And we go out and kind of learn there on that street where there's really not a lot of traffic and then slowly working our way up to a parking lot that's actually got cars in it and a street where people are actually passing. We don't send them out 65 miles an hour on Highway 35 one Friday afternoon just before rush hour. No, on a slow street, carefully working our way up to desert Here's how you handle this car. Learning developing skill. I think that much more pictures how we are to discern the will of God. To know what pleases the Lord. We should not expect to be experts at discerning God's will upon conversion. Those of you here today who are new believers, those of you who are young people, you've not lived all that long, and you do know Christ as your Savior, discerning what pleases the Lord takes time. Time. And it takes maturity. You're not going to get thrown behind the driver's wheel on day one of your interest. It's going to take time to develop. Now, in the mystery of the Spirit-sanctifying work, a new believer can actually rapidly pass up a long-time Christian in maturity. We don't understand how that happens. God knows, and He's sovereign in that. But having said that, those of you who are newer in the faith, those of you who are young people Be careful not to write off the convictions mature believers have developed about holy living. There's a tendency in our setting just to look at some things as generational. Or, you've been stuck in a church for too long, and so you can't discern anything. That's obvious coming from an old guy, isn't it? But really, let's think about this. If discerning the will of God, if determining what pleases the Lord, is through a process of renewing our minds, would it not follow that those who are more mature in the faith should be further along in that area? Now, it's not to say they always are. And I think every one of us, as we come to discern the will of God, we make mistakes. No one person is the ultimate guide to discerning the will of God in the decisions that we must make morally in this life. But having said that, I think it's very foolish for younger Christians, for younger people, to just dismiss what someone who's walked with God for a long time thinks. There might be a reason they think that way. One thing I'll tell you about an older person who's walked with the Lord for many years, they've been burned by the world in ways you've never been burned. They've come to realize that there's places in this world that promise satisfaction that don't. They've come to discern that there's certain things that lift them up in their walk with Christ and there's other things that drag them down. Don't dismiss that. They may be wrong. They cannot perhaps ultimately tell you what to do unless for a time because they're your parents. But don't write them off. Walking with God is something that takes place over time Seek out people of maturity and wisdom. I wouldn't seek out for two minutes the person that has the two boxes. And I ask them, is this a worldly practice? Is this something that I should avoid? How do you handle this? And it's, oh, it's box A or box B, and that's the end of the discussion. There's no worth in that. But talk to someone who's walked with God for some time. And one thing that they will tell you, if, they're, if you're growing in the faith, as they have grown in the faith over the years, you will discover there are some things you thought were no big deal that are actually displeasing to God. Be willing to change your thinking. Be willing to come to say, you know, I really thought this was nothing, and I'm coming to discern it's bigger than I thought. It's not drawing me to Christ. It's not pleasing to God. By the renewal of my mind, I'm going to come to realize there's some things I don't see as wrong at all that are. And on the other side of that, as you walk with God for a long time, there will probably be some things you think are wrong that you come to realize are not. You've had a sensitive conscience about this or that and you come through time to realize, you know, that's, that's not the problem. That's not what's displeasing to God. Many times there's other pieces that are displeasing to God in an activity or in a thought behavior. But it's not what you thought was wrong. And through maturity you come to see it differently. We will not always be able to discern the will of God with respect to some matters of life, but we should all be lifelong learners. We should be willing to listen to one another. We may adamantly disagree. More on that in a moment. But we should be listening to one another. Listening to those who believe they have come to discern what pleases the Lord. Wherever someone is earnestly drawing such conclusions, we should have open ears as we strive to please the Lord. The problem comes at the point that so often our emphasis is, I want to please myself. I want to do things my way, and I really don't want anyone messing with my life. When we're thinking that way, we are being conformed into the image of the world. Because Christ has saved a body that edifies itself in love. That builds itself up through understanding and discernment and growth and change. Never dismiss the wisdom of others, the experiences of others, the insights and the prayers of others. We've been delivered Not to live in moral slavery to sin and the law, but to fulfill the law of Christ by learning to detect what we must do or believe in order to please the Lord. That should be our life orientation. I devote myself wholeheartedly to the service of God and I am transformed by the renewal of my mind to discern what pleases the Lord. That's my orientation. Now I'd like us to think of this. I'm going to make two statements and then draw an inference from it. We are called to actively refuse to live in conformity with this world. We are called to renew our minds and learn to discern God's will. The implication, I think, is that we must be students of God's Word. We need to know what God has said. We need to ever be growing in our understanding of what God has revealed in His Word. The Word of God needs to be something that we are reading routinely, habitually, the preaching and teaching of God's Word, something we're continually taking in so that our minds are consistently being renewed to know what God thinks. I don't think there'd be any argument on that. Maybe there's a little more on this next point, but I'd like to stress it. I think it also implies that we must be students of our culture and the ways of this world. Now, there's a way in which we should not be drawn into this world, clearly. But I think that if we are going to come to terms with Romans 12.2, it means we're going to know what the world is, what it thinks, how it behaves, so that I can know I'm not conforming to it. The Christian that's in the greatest trouble is the one who ignores the fact that there is a culture out there bent against Christ. Who ignores that there is a world with attraction acts as if it doesn't exist. It's Probably one who's being drawn in in all kinds of places without knowing it. We need to be students of our culture and students of our world in the right sense. So Romans twelve two calls us to a holy life in stark distinction from the world. We need to know what that world is, what it teaches, how it looks. Romans 12 does not call us to curl up in a fetal ball and hide in a Christian bunker as we pursue utter ignorance of our culture. That's not what's here. We cannot follow God's counsel in this verse if we run away from culture and remain ignorant of the world in which we live. Nor can we walk in obedience to Christ if we are enamored by our culture and drawn to live like the world around us we must discern what it is, how it looks, what it says and believes, and we must be careful not to be conformed to that as we grow in discernment about what pleases the Lord. So as we think of culture and work in application concerning our own, all cultures receive common grace from God. They all have honorable aspects to them. Perhaps especially those cultures that have the most Christian influence in their heritage. We can go to any culture, any place in the world, there's something redeemable there. The image of God is there as twisted and fallen as it is. There's something good in that culture. There's no completely evil culture. Having said that, every culture is ordered by sinners and has aspects that are calibrated to undermine faith and faithfulness God. As believers, we need to grow in our discernment of these aspects. They're part of every culture. Probably part of the culture of every church. We need to recognize that and grow to discern it. I despair of providing any comprehensive or even significantly helpful word of application regarding these matters. I'm appalled at what I'm not going to say here today and I hope that I don't say too much that it proves unhelpful. But I wish that you would allow me to touch on a few random points of application. Each of them must be put to the test, at least largely because what I'm doing is reflecting the maturity of my life at this place in discerning what pleases the Lord. And I don't do that with perfection. So you need to weigh my thoughts, but what I'd like to do is begin a discussion here today. As we work toward understanding our culture and being alert to not being conformed to it, it's not this little box in this little box, or this big box in this little box, of right and wrong, very simple always to discern. It's a matter of coming to see our world as we should. Now, I think there's about three tiers here. The first tier is the obvious one to all of us who are genuinely believers in Jesus Christ and who have a fairly conservative view of Scripture. That is, we are seeking to conform our lives to what the Bible actually says. There's a lot of Christians that aren't doing that. Some of them will even admit it. That's not where we're at. We don't think the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. And so they are allowing their culture to conform their thinking. They would acknowledge that. In fact, even say that God is ever-changing and culture is an evidence of where He's at. Not those people, but those within this church who believe that the Word of God is God's Word. It is the truth. For us, there are cultural influences that we don't really have a struggle with abortion. We recognize because our minds are being renewed that God is the giver of life. That to take that life is not our prerogative. It's not something God's placed in our hands. Obviously life is taken at certain places. I realize there's implications in different situations and all that we don't have to argue this. We're not going to be conformed to our culture by having abortions routinely in our church. Homosexuality. We understand the necessity of compassion. We understand the necessity of proclaiming the Gospel of Christ winsomely and freely. We understand that God can save anyone. Romans 1 is in the Bible. It's blatantly obvious that this is an activity that falls outside of the Creator's design and is a rejection of His good purposes for humanity. We don't have to argue these things at any great length. The Bible speaks to them so clearly. If you desire to honor the Bible, you'll reject these influences in our culture. But we come then to a second realm. And here's a realm again where we don't really have any argument. The Bible speaks very clearly but we are being drawn in by the passions of the flesh. Pornography. I have not to this day heard an evangelical defense of pornography. I don't know that I ever will. It's hard to know. There's evangelical so-called defenses of homosexuality. Perhaps someday there will be. But at this point, I don't know of anybody who's arguing that Involvement in pornography is a good thing. It's okay. God's pleased with it. But we're mired in it. The Church of Jesus Christ is drawn in by its passions to what God has set off limits and said, This is death. But we're in it, neck deep. Marriage. We're in it, neck deep with divorce on the one side and with broken marriages where there is no rejoicing, no joy, no hope, no light. We know what marriage should be. We understand that. But we are very much conformed to this world. We're very much drawn in by the influences of this world when it comes to the state of marriage in our day among Christians. But we come then to that third realm, and I want to park here for a while. And that's the realm where it requires discernment and where there are legitimate differences between faithful, godly believers. We don't agree on what's worldly and what is not. I'm going to offer... Just a smattering of somewhat disconnected and by no means comprehensive statements that I would like us just to begin to think about. I know we are thinking about it. But to be stimulated in our minds, what does it mean to renew the mind in this culture, in this world? I'm not going to list here. Here's the behaviors that are worldly. Here's the behaviors that are godly. As if it's always simplistic like that. No, but hear me. Number one, we must resist our culture's infatuation with the temporal, the fleeting, the trendy, the trivial, the shallow, the sensational, and the profane. I don't mean profane by swearing. I mean that which is wholly oriented to this world. The temporal, the fleeting, the trendy, the trivial, the shallow, the sensational, the profane, our God is none of that. God is eternal and enduring, and His gifts are eternal and they are enduring. We are citizens of a kingdom that will never be shaken and that will never end. We worship a God whose salvation plan has been in operation for millennia. Our life narrative is rooted with the great cloud of witnesses who have lived and died before us and we pass the torch of Christ on to the next generation who teaches these same ancient truths faithfully to the next generation. Then as the reality of heaven grows more and more sweet to us, more and more real to us, the trends, the hype, the trivialities, the shallowness of this world fade in our estimation. We're not conformed into this smallness. We're transformed by eyes fixed on eternal matters that will endure for all of time. That changes us. It changes us. It changes what we like, where we spend our time, how we see this world. Number two. We must resist our culture's impatient demand to have everything now, to fix everything immediately, and to wait on nothing and no one. Unique to our culture, but very much a part of where we live today. I don't know, I I say this with absolute reverence, but let's understand this, God is slow. From our perspective, our finite, fleeting perspective, God is slow. And we must learn to wait on Him. To wait on Him in prayer. In traffic jams. In providing our needs. In healing our sicknesses. In bringing us a mate. In helping us overcome sin. In taking us home to be with Him when we desperately want to die and can't. God is slow. We live in a world of frenetic impatience. We must realize that we are as impatient people being conformed to this world where everything is passing and trendy and fast because there's nothing else. There's no place for laziness in the life of Christ. But a patient life is pleasing to the Lord. Number three, we must resist our culture's orientation toward materialism and consumerism. Our culture is teaching you and me every day, you are what you buy. Possessing the right products Defines your worth. If you look a certain way, if you have a certain thing, if some status is yours because of what you possess, that's all important. It teaches us that wearing the right clothes, attaining the right toys, acquiring the dream properties, driving the desired status symbol, getting more and more and more is all a source of everlasting satisfaction. And it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Worldliness teaches that anxiety and fear in the face of economic hardship is justifiable because our life consists in the abundance of our wealth. Transformed thinking realizes that God is the owner of all things and it rests in that. It recognizes that we are stewards of the wealth of God that we must worry about nothing but walk in faith because our lives christian no longer consists in the abundance of our possessions that's not our life in god we are eternally rich The things of this world are passing and they will all burn. Our relationship with Him and with His people will endure forever and ever. Thinking differently. A renewed mind looks at possessions in a radically different way. We must resist, fourthly, our culture's orientation toward amusement. We are to be in Christ people of the book. We're people of the written Word. God has chosen the Word to communicate His truth to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. We live in a culture that is so bent toward turning the mind off, and we are conformed to that emphasis and need to be watchful of it. There is a place to let the brain rest. There is a place for amusement. Again, I don't think it's this box or that box. But we need to realize that our world is seeking to conform us away from the Word. Away from rational thought. Away from thinking God's thoughts after Him. It has no time for meditation. To sit alone in an empty room is seen as laziness or is seen as a person that has no life, when that may be in fact the evidence that a person is really alive. Because he or she can sit in an empty room with God and be utterly happy. Number five, we must resist our culture's musical and entertainment expressions which promote the spirit of the age and make no attempt to reflect the creative order. I'm I'm probably going to emphasize particularly here music, but what I say could apply to movies, it could apply to fiction, it could apply to many sources of media. But we need to recognize particularly in the area of music that for many centuries thoughtful Christian authors have argued that music should conform to the cosmic order in which creative realities clue us in to how we should order society in our personal lives. The same argument could be made for movies, as I said. But as recreators made in the image of God, our goal should be then to tap the moral order which reveals the glory of God. We should marshal... We should marshal musical sounds for the glory of the Lord, realizing that sound is not raw material waiting for us to do with it whatever we wish. Rather, nature rejoices in God and music is given as a tool by which we conform to nature's song as it praises our Creator, demonstrating the beauty and the order of His creative handiwork music that aims to merely please the flesh ignores this calling entirely and most of what is produced today is in that mold in that mold it does not care what god thinks it does not care what the creative order is announcing and i think then that people who choose music quote because i like it are really evidencing that they are being molded by this world's expectations. That doesn't mean it's wrong to like it. It doesn't mean that liking it is an evidence that it's bad. But if that's my thinking, I just go with what I like, I'm thinking in a very worldly manner. There's much more to it than that. By the way, a quick side note on movies, the same thing is true there. I could be tempted to throw them all in one box, but I don't think we should do that. In fact, I think some of the most godless movies are ones done by Christians because they're just plain flat boring and stupid. Frankly, I mean, so many Christian movies are just worthless drivel. I'd much rather watch a secular movie that at least reflects some reality about the real world. We've got to be cautious. We need to discern but we should not be so simplistic as to think that anything that has the stamp Christian on it is good. It may be bad. We need to discern. Now let me say about music, this doesn't mean that only sacred music is appropriate either. It's not to say that all music can be neatly labeled moral or immoral. It is to say that music can lean toward order or disorder, it can make progress in reflecting the beauty and order of the cosmos, or it can prove regressive. I think I could play some, some music here. I could turn it on, I could look for the worst of the worst, and I think you could say, that's regressive. That is not helping anybody. But if you have a category for that in any area, then we need to continue to grow in discernment to understand where other pieces of music fall. Now the words of songs are obviously objective on at least some level. Even the music may serve as a vehicle, though, of worldly philosophy dragging its hearers down with it because it is not ordered. It does not reflect the beauty of the God of nature. So much of Christian music really then is driven simply by what people like, by marketing to them with consumeristic concern there's very little produce that seeks to teach theology that starts with a driving desire to marshal sound to the glory of God where somebody sets out and says, I want to write a tune and I want to bring to it a counterpoint, I want to bring to it a harmony, I want to bring to it a beat and all of the pieces of music so that this resonates with the glory of God. And so along these lines, we must resist pop culture's pressure to turn our cor- corporate worship of God into sentimental, man-centered reflection of societal trends. In worship music, I think on some level, we should think of this in all of our musical interests and involvement, but in worship music particular, particularly, there is no right box and wrong box into which we can put every piece. But, I would encourage us, we should lean. You should lean in what you're allowing your mind, your ears to hear. We should lean toward the deep over the shallow and trite. We should lean toward careful ordering over the simplistic. We should lean toward otherworldly over the familiar. We should lean toward the engaging over the purely entertaining and toward the developmental over the ornamental. That is that which speaks to the mind as opposed to that which simply moves us emotionally for a moment and then flies away like a mist. May we remember in that area of worship that Jesus Christ walks among the glowing lampstands of His churches as our Kent Hughes has said, He treads the aisles of our churches and He sits beside us. He searches here for those who worship in spirit and in truth. And He desires our praise that we would reflect our joy in Him in relationship together. Do we offer Him praise worthy of His name? We can talk about music. We can just talk about the way that you're sitting there. The way that I'm engaging. We can allow the press of this world to draw us away, even when we are in worship, to be thinking about a thousand other things, impatiently wondering what is going to happen here or there, incapable of centering our thoughts on any one thing, and resting in, I liked it or I didn't like it. We must resist our culture's infatuation with celebrity and image creation, personality over character. There's the world of the blogs, the world of Facebook. Is it wrong? No. But it can be used in such a way that I serve as my own press secretary and I'm always working to create my own image so that people would see me for the way that I want them to see me. And in that, we may very well be being pressed in the mold of this world. To elevate self, not to live as the new humanity in Christ. And on and on we can go. But I'm, I'm seeking to accomplish something here just by this discussion. It's not just we're going to lay out, here's the list of worldly and the list of everything else that's free to do. We have to learn to think God's thoughts after Him. And to realize we're all not in the same place. We're maturing at different rates. We have different experiences. But to build each other up, to edify one another, and to encourage one another to love what God loves. To think His thoughts after Him. To discern such that we learn to please the Lord in our lives. What I'm concerned about far more importantly than what you do in this area or this area of your life is, is this your orientation? Do you want to give your life in service to Christ? Do you long to renew your mind to discern what God thinks? Is that the way life is being filtered through your soul? Are you walking in that new narrative that says, Jesus Christ is Lord of all? He's the Lord of my opinions. He's the Lord of my feelings. He's the Lord of the thoughts that go through my mind. He's the Lord of what I do with my life and how I think and what I love. In that there's great joy. We won't get it all sorted out in this life. There's going to be all kinds of disagreements and different applications and different ways of living. But let's walk this line. Let's walk this path. I want to live to please the Lord. He's called us to this glorious life. He's called us up out of depravity, and He's called us to live in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we do so encouraging one another and seeking to please the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I stand before this congregation as a man attracted to the world, as a sinner saved by the grace of God alone, saved by the mercies of Jesus. We acknowledge, Father, that our minds are so conformed to the things of this world that we don't even recognize it, but we plead with You by Your Spirit to reveal to us where we fail, where we're missing it, where our joy in You is incomplete. I plead, Father, that You will deepen us and grow us as a congregation. These concepts, these ideas are by no means popular. They will turn away many people who just don't want to think like this. But God, I thank You for a church that doesn't have all the answers and doesn't have everything put in a simple category, but a church that is bent toward discerning Your will being convinced in their own minds of what is right and what is wrong in their conscience, but training the conscience. I pray that we'd ever grow as a church that way. That we would edify and build up one another in the faith. And Father, I pray in behalf of anyone who does not know Christ as Savior. And I pray, God, that they would find that their mind is turned against You that they must repent and seek the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I pray that You'd lead them to repentance, to receive the gift of eternal life, that You'd pull them out of depravity and set their feet in the narrative of freedom in Christ. For those of us that are there, we rejoice. We acknowledge our sin. We confess our weaknesses. I pray, God, that this would be a day of dawning for some who turn from sins in which they are mired. and For all of us, that we will seek Your face and know there is no greater joy in this life or the next than to know Your pleasure. May we know that. We ask You to help us